This week, as I'm sure everyone knows by now, a historical tragedy took place as the Paris uh, Cathedral of Notre Dame caught fire and was destroyed. And it's been interesting to watch the world really mourn uh, this tragedy, and rightfully so. But I can't help but wonder the nature of our sorrow. There's a difference in mourning the loss of a historic relic and mourning the loss of something alive and active. For example, when a loved one dies, we mourn. But we also mourn if years later a cherished picture album of that loved one is lost or destroyed. In the former, we weep over an actual loss. In the latter, we weep over a memory lost. I believe our world has been mourning the loss of the cathedral in the latter sense. Not as something alive that died, but as kind of this nostalgic memory of a time gone by. I'll take it even further. I believe those flames engulfing that cathedral, turning its beauty into ashes, is emblematic as it is tragic. Emblematic of the way our world views religion in general and Christianity specifically. Something once useful to those more archaic times, but now buried beneath the ashes of modern progress. And the reason why, speaking as plainly as I can, is that our secular world simply doesn't believe religious claims are actually true. Perhaps a helpful coping strategy for those who need such a thing, but objectively speaking, none of this is actually true. I read an article from The Onion, of all places this week, for those who don't know. uh, The Onion is a satirical news site. That's very important as I read this article because you're going to say, whoa, that's a weird article. It's a satirical news site that has a way of kind of mocking us by telling the truth that we don't want to hear. Here's how The Onion covered the fire of Notre Dame. Following a massive fire that destroyed significant portions of the Catholic cathedral... Paris officials vowed Tuesday to rebuild Notre Dame despite the cosmic absurdity of seeking inherent meaning in the fleeting inventions of man. We will come together as a nation to reconstruct Notre Dame, no matter the fundamental irrationality of giving a mere man-made structure of stone and wood any sort of deeper meaning in an existence where disordered chaos is the only universal truth. We will endeavor to fix the cathedral, despite all empirical evidence to the contrary, in a world which demonstrates time and time again that there is nothing real to be found in worshiping in these artificial edifices. It's satirical, but I think satire tells us the truth of the way our world works. The brilliance of satire is that it gets away with saying what so many people are thinking, 
but no, it's not right to say, and perhaps you're one of those. Perhaps you're one of those who says, I know I shouldn't think this, and I'm certainly not going to say this, but this is nonsense. But I am willing to say it this morning. Gone are the days where claims of Christianity fit within the plausibility of social belief. Replaced instead by a new plausibility structure where religion is now viewed as helplessly naive at best and socially dangerous at worst. And so, as we watch the cathedral burn this week, as tragic as it was, perhaps it was fitting. Let the cathedrals burn. Our world has no more use for them and their false security for an age when we didn't know what we now know. What we now know is truly true. Well, we have gathered this morning unashamedly to protest that lie. We gather gather together this morning because we actually believe this stuff in an age that this stuff is unbelievable. We gather together to proclaim Jesus is truly true. And we proclaim it because he proclaimed it. And not only did he proclaim it, he proved it by his resurrection. Let's watch him do that together this morning. I want us to see three things, pick out kind of three points from that speech. I won't be able to obviously uh, go through the whole thing in detail, but three things from what I read. The audacity of his claim, the proof of his claim, and the goodness of his claim. Now let's just start with the audacity of his claim. Look at verse 28. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, They asked Pilate to have him executed. That's an interesting statement. They found no guilt worthy of death, and yet they asked Pilate to kill him. Why? If he did nothing wrong, then why kill an innocent man? Well, it wasn't what Jesus did. It was what he claimed. He claimed to be their God. He claimed to be their salvation. He claimed, in fact, his salvation was the only salvation. And so he was condemned upon the charge of blasphemy, which was a capital offense in that day. It was his brazen exclusivity that led him to the gallows. And 2,000 years later, nothing has changed, honestly. Nobody has a problem with Jesus as an inspirational figure. It is his claims that people find so disturbing. Particularly in our modern society. The moment you claim to have the truth, you become the worst kind of villain in our culture. How can you possibly claim that you have the one truth, right? How can you possibly believe that your way is the only way? I think this has probably risen to, to the top of all contemporary 
complaints against Christianity. I think this has probably risen to become the biggest stumbling block in Christianity today. How can you possibly claim that your way is the only way and everyone else is wrong, that Jesus is truly true? So because of that, because that's such a big thing in our society today, and maybe some of you here are thinking that, let me pause for a moment and just offer a brief analysis, one might say critique, of that popular postmodern notion. I sympathize with the heart behind it. I really do. Because honestly, so much harm has been done in the name of exclusive truth. When people are convinced that they are right and everyone else is wrong, bad things tend to happen. And so the reaction I get, the reaction against this truth harm is to do away with the notion of absolute truth altogether. If people would just accept that their truth is their truth, but at the same time accept that other people's truth is true for them, we would achieve kind of this utopian society of tolerance. Now, on the surface, that sounds so right. But in the end, it proves just as intolerant as any worldview. To say nobody should be allowed to have an exclusive truth is itself an exclusive truth. When a culture says that nobody should be allowed to proselytize their beliefs upon others, that is a culture proselytizing its beliefs upon others. The modern idea of tolerance is an illusion, and I'll be honest, in the end, ironically, proves to be a very intolerant illusion. I drove past a church advertising for Easter with a big sign out front saying, all faiths, all beliefs, all are celebrated and welcomed no matter what. And my immediate thought was, would I be welcomed there? Is there room within your tolerant community for someone like me who unashamedly does believe Jesus is truly true and wants to convince every person on the planet that that's the case. That is to say, would I be allowed to preach this sermon in that pulpit? The answer, of course, is no. I don't think I would be tolerated very long within their tolerant community. Now look, I'm not trying to be uncharitable to that church or any other church. The sentiment behind that philosophy is is loving and noble. And I'm sure it's a place filled with lovely people that I would would truly enjoy and could learn a lot of things from. I'm only trying to demonstrate. And this is important for us as we speak about the question, is Jesus truly true? I'm only trying to demonstrate that this new idea of truth tolerance is incredibly intolerant. In fact, non-Westerners would point out that it has been created by a predominantly white Western postmodern worldview which effectively eliminates 95% of all other worldviews in our world. You don't get more intolerant than that. Here's the point. Truth claims are inevitable and unavoidable. You have them. I have them. 
We all have them. So the answer is not to naively try to avoid them. The answer is to answer the question of all questions which truth is truly true. Now at first this seems like a daunting task. Maybe even impossible. Particularly the questions when it comes to the greater questions of life. Is there a God? If so, whose version of God is true? What is the meaning and purpose of life? What happens after a day? How, how can we possibly answer all of these questions? Well, here is where Jesus stands alone. He didn't just make an extraordinary truth claim. He promised an extraordinary proof to that truth claim. He promised that he would do something so marvelous, so spectacular, so unique, something the world has never seen such that the world could never again ignore him. He promised to prove forever that he alone is truly true. He said he would rise from the dead. I think anybody would have to agree that if he pulled that off, then his truth must be true. So let's go there. We've seen the audacity of his claim. Well, let's look at the proof of his claim. Verse 29. And when they had carried, carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. And with that... The stage is now set. Jesus has gone all in on his resurrection. If he stays in the tomb, we should ignore him as a liar. If he comes out of the tomb, we should bow down to him as our Lord. Verse 30. But God raised him from the dead. Over and over again in the book of Acts, as we shall see, as a congregation, that was their answer to everything. Acts 2, 24, but God raised him from the dead. Acts 10, 40, but God raised him from the dead. Acts 13, 30, but God raised him from the dead. Acts 17, 31, but God has given assurance by raising him from the dead. God raised him from the dead, served as their trump card. It's how this whole thing called Christianity got started. Essentially, the apostles and early Christians went about the ancient world saying, God raised Jesus of Nazareth from the dead, which means he is really true, and all that he said and promised is true. In other words, the resurrection was viewed as heaven's great truth claim. The inbreaking and vindication of absolute truth. And I think we must all agree that if it did happen, then this would be the case. So did it actually happen? It doesn't end with, but God raised him from the dead. A statement that anybody can make. Continue on with verse 31. And for many days... He appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. The thing that is so compelling to historians and difficult to overcome for skeptics 
is the public nature of Christ's resurrection. If the disciples said that Jesus appeared to them, and you're just going to have to trust us, we saw him, he's risen, Christianity would have never worked. But that's not what happened. Verse 31 says that for many days Jesus appeared to many witnesses. Now, if Acts was written a few hundred years after the fact, then you could say, well, how do we know that he actually appeared to many witnesses? But Acts was written around 80 A.D., which means these were contemporary claims that were verifiable or falsifiable. Even more compelling are the letters of Paul, some written merely 20 years after the death of Christ where he claims that more than 500 people saw the resurrected Jesus, most of whom, he says, are still alive. Do you see how significant that is? 500 people saw him, and most of them are still alive. Why don't you go ask them for yourself? Friends, this is not the conspiracy of a few. This is not an ancient legend passed down through generations... This is a monumental historical event attested to by thousands of witnesses recorded by multiple sources, both within and outside the Bible. This is one of, if not the most thoroughly documented and confirmed event of ancient history. I'll put it another way. We have as much evidence, we have as much historical evidence of Jesus' resurrection as we do that he lived at all. So if there, is an, if there is enough evidence for you to believe that he lived, then you ought to believe that he lives again. Harvard scholar Simon Greenleaf put it this way. So overwhelming is the evidence that it takes more faith to not believe in the resurrection than it does to believe in it. To believe it. Simply put. Were we talking about anything other than the resurrection, there would be zero doubt from anyone that it happened historically. But the problem for many, and I understand, is that we are talking about a resurrection. And that is why many say, I don't have an explanation for the evidence, but dead people just don't come back to life. (laughs) That's fine. I can respect your honesty just as long as you are willing to admit that you now are the one choosing blind faith over historical evidence. Friends, Jesus of Nazareth is risen from the dead. It actually happened. And what this does is it changes the invitation of Jesus. I am not here this morning to ask you If you find his message inspiring, I think it is. I think you would find it inspiring, but that's not what I'm asking you. I'm not here to ask you if you agree or disagree with his teachings. I'm not not here to ask you if you think he will improve your life. If you find your emotions being stirred... I'm not here to enter into the realm of subjectivity. I'm here in the name of objectivity. I'm here to ask you, what are you going to do with the resurrection of Jesus Christ? If he is risen, it does not matter what you feel about Christianity. It doesn't matter if his followers are hypocrites. We are. It doesn't matter 
if we have let you down. We have and we will. It doesn't matter if his claims are too exclusive for your liking. It doesn't matter if his ethics are too outdated for your tastes. None of that matters anymore. What matters is you have a dead man who came back to life and we all have to deal with that. But what you will discover as you deal with this exclusive truth is that it is a breathtakingly beautiful exclusive truth. You see, I could stop right here. We could end the sermon now and I could say, Jesus risen, therefore he's true. Deal with it, people. But I'm not. And the reason I'm not going to do that is because our passage doesn't do that and the Bible doesn't do that. Instead, this is the message of the scriptures and of our passage. Jesus is risen, therefore he is true, and hallelujah that it's Jesus who is true. Because no truth is better than the truth that Jesus came to bring. So let's end with that. We've seen the audacity of his claim, the proof of his claim finally the goodness of his claim. Continue on with verse verse, uh, 32. And we bring you the good news. For those of you who know, the gospel. We bring you the good news. Paul says it's good news that Jesus is true. Why? Well, if he is true, then all that he promised and all that he did is likewise true. And that's where Paul's argument goes ultimately after he speaks a little bit to the Jewish audience about Jesus being better than David because that was a stumbling block for them. It comes to, his sermon comes to a crescendo there in verse 38. Here's the conclusion of Jesus being risen and true. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. The resurrection does not just vindicate the truth of Jesus, it vindicates the promises of Jesus. Jesus promised forgiveness of sins, and he promised that his cross would make forgiveness of sins possible. That's all we've been talking about this week. In our Monday Thursday service, our Good Friday service, that's all it's been about is his promise that this cross can forgive your sins. So when he rises, it means the cross Worked. Easter is not just the resurrection of Jesus. It is the resurrection of his glorious promise that forgiveness is available to every single one of you. You can be forgiven. You actually can be forgiven. How do I know that's true? Because I know Jesus is true. Perhaps... The notion of exclusive truth offends you. But if something has to be true, then you have to admit that it is really good news that this is what is true. Can you conceive of a better exclusive truth than one with forgiveness at its core? What it does is create the most inclusive exclusive truth. That's what Tim Keller says. Keller says the gospel is an exclusive truth, but it is the most inclusive, exclusive truth the world has ever known. Here's why. Verse 39 demonstrates that. By him, 
by Jesus, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Now here he's talking to Jews, so that's why he talks about the religion of Moses. But you can insert any other truth claim there, any other worldview. By him, everyone who believes is freed from that which you could not be freed by the law of Moses, the law of Muhammad, the law of progressive liberalism, the law of traditional conservatism, the law of secular humanism, the law of tolerant postmodernism. Insert your worldview. His point is by him, you can be freed in a way that none of those others can free you. They all do the same thing. And it's the thing that we hate about exclusive truth. They divide us. They end in arrogance and self-righteousness and sectarianism and tribalism and scorn and hatred and perhaps even violence towards those who don't believe your truth. But what if your exclusive truth is this? We are all the same. Profoundly flawed sinners desperate for forgiveness. And the truth that is proclaimed is that forgiveness is actually available. This is the essence of Jesus' exclusive truth. My truth includes all by indicting us all, but then offering forgiveness to all. There's a viral picture being shared all over the internet, which is quickly becoming kind of the iconic image of the aftermath of Notre Dame's destruction. We see Piles of rubble and ashes, 850 years of history destroyed, except for one thing, and if you've seen the picture, you know. Hanging above the rubble like this emblem of hope's transcendence is the cathedral's iconic golden cross, not just untouched by the fire, but actually glowing from the heat of the fire. What an image. If you can't make a sermon illustration out of that, then you quit preaching. What a message. Perhaps our secular world has no use for truth in general and religion specifically. But the one thing the entire world will always need is God's forgiveness. And no fire and nobody can undo the exclusive truth that forgiveness is possible. If Jesus is risen, then Jesus is true. And if Jesus is true, then everything we want to be true and everything we need to be true is actually true. Praise God, Jesus is truly true. Let me pray. Lord, it it's almost seems too good to be true as we, as we take 30 minutes to just contemplate that this actually happened. It feels almost too good to be true. That is, can it really be? But your word and your history and evidence all says to us, yes, it's true. You are risen from the dead. And because you are risen from the dead, everything you said and everything you did is true. We praise you. Fill our hearts with joy. In the name of the risen King, we pray. Amen.